Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. When children love learning, they can tackle any challenge life throws at them. Sylvan's insight assessment can help you determine if your child is ready for what's ahead. It can also identify gaps in learning and point out areas that could be of concern for your child so they can tackle what's to come. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. Welcome to the Hidden Yardage Podcast. I'm Mark Lane. Follow me on Twitter at the Real Mark Lane. Joined as always by Sean Martin, who you can find at Sean Martin NFL. Sean, here we are. OTAs they kick off this week. Are you excited? I was excited to talk some Renegades and you know some more ACM awards. I thought that was kind of the direction the show was going, but yeah, OTAs are bring us back to football, so that works as well. But we talked some rookie mini camp and. Now we get to see those same players, you know, back out there and where they fall on the full depth chart compared to some other players who haven't been in the building yet. So. Yeah, it'll be interesting as always. And I think with OTAs for some of the fans, this is when, uh, you know, it seems kind of like training camp almost to them or you get to hear from Mike McCarthy and Dak Prescott and, in a football capacity. So people are kind of like, oh, wow. Uh, it, there's so much excitement. Or, oh, there's so much negativity. But we're here to help you kind of put it all into perspective. Right, Sean? Well, of course. I think the important part about starting off of OTAs is, you, know, you mentioned some of that excitement for training camp that fans have. And what's really exciting is when you see players and coaches even that can put you know the two together. So that's why... When this journey starts at this point in the off season, you know, you, do you have a player that's going to be able to continue that when they get out to training camp and in Oxnard and through the preseason schedule that intertwines with it? That's kind of the start of this whole thing. So, you know, not to get too high on any report out of OTAs before that player really shows out in training camp. And then the same goes for someone who shows out in training camp if they've been doing it consistently since the OTA period to really have a chance to, you know, get a starting role or see the field for this team. Yeah, and I think we'll tackle just some of the positive stuff first what you're going to hear from any player that talks is that they're in the best shape of their life <laughs> I was they're all gonna say it it'll be true for about 92 percent of them yes so whoever's available whoever gets talked to that's what's going to be said is that they're in the best shape of their life i mean ezekiel elliott whoever was in the best shape of of his life last season, look what happened to him. Do you think, not to put you on the spot, do you think he's on a roster by the end of an OTA? Or does it take until training camp? No, because these teams okay. right now they want to see um, what they have in terms of their young guys, um, guys that they've slotted kind of for the future. They want to see what they have right now. They don't need to go see what's on the street. They know what's out there. And they can plug them in in a pinch if they need to. But you said, is he on a roster by the end of training camp? You said that? Well, is that more realistic than OTAs, which it sounds like? Yeah. Yeah. 
or week two. Because then his salary's not guaranteed. Right. That plug-and-play type of veteran where I think teams you know, know what they'd be getting with him. Yeah, so not to get too far off on Elliott, but how things will go with Elliott for the rest of the offseason is he'll have visits or workouts, and they'll just see where he is, and, you know, we'll give you a call back, and we like our guys, and talent evaluation. And that's just how it'll be for him. It's going to be hilarious if he shows up, like, working out at the store and everybody, like, the Cowboys have to, like, walk the line of, like, everybody carefully saying that he's not really on the team and they haven't actually signed him yet. But, you know, but they might be entertaining it, but in the meantime, they're just letting him work out at the store. So, like you said, other teams, though, are going to be just evaluating what they have in the backfield. You know, I think we can apply that to this Cowboys team as far as one of the positions to look the closest at in OTAs because what's Deuce Vaughn going to look like? You know, granted they're running, all running behind offensive linemen that don't have the pads on yet and every run could be a touchdown because they don't tackle to the ground and we'll see all of that still, even through training camp. But, you know, Deuce Vaughn and then your own veteran that you signed, Ronald Jones, and then, you know, the, the rehab process from Tony Pollard. So all three of those together give some intrigue to the Cowboys backfield in year one without Elliott as opposed to, you know, any other team needing to jump to sign Elliott to be the starter backup type of player that he can be at this point. Again, that kind of goes into it in terms of that's where some of the optimism is going to be with, oh, wow, there's going to be a, a a video from the practice field of Deuce Vaughn catching a pass and, well, I told you he's got – uh, speed and he can play in that space game. Yeah, I've said on all the shows that, you know, any Deuce Vaughn training camp highlight is going to be blown out of proportion like crazy. And it's going to be a lot of fun. Like I've said it on round tables here. First time Deuce Vaughn runs behind a two man defense that has two corners out there, it's going to be like the highlight of the offseason. There's some optimism that can go with that. It's understandable. But in terms of how that actually goes into what's happening in terms of installing the offense and so forth. I mean, it's really kind of irrelevant. And even if he did badly and dropped the pass, it's still kind of irrelevant. Yeah, I don't know how much of, you know, I think this has been made a big deal out of as far as Mike McCarthy installing this offense and what's that going to look like and is it going to change the script or the practice days? I think he's a coach who's been around long enough to know that, you know, exactly how an offensive install is going to go to the point of not really having to figure it out on the fly, which it seems like what people are expecting these practices to be. So, yeah, I don't think we're going to read too much into, you know, the execution of a play. If there's a drop pass or a missed blocky assignment, it's all just trying to, you know, see what plays they're going to put in, what packages McCarthy has planned right now. And I don't think that's this big hurdle that some people have made it out to be for this team to tie up all the time in the offseason. Just with the way that – um the offseason's gone. There's a lot of anticipation with what the offense is going to look like, and people will try to get glimpses of it. But right now, when they're going through their installs, they're really trying to get <clears throat> everything in order so that they go out in training camp and they're doing it perfectly. So there are probably going to be some mistakes and hiccups and so forth. Uh, like last year, they noticed that uh, Matt Wiletsko was taken out of a drill and replaced because he was false starting. So you're going to see a lot of that too. It's no big deal. Yeah, I always read more into the position, you know, 
position flex that these guys sell off as far as where they line up. So to hit on that again, like the execution of how they actually make the play, and if he's false starting, you know, go over it, put him back in the lineup, different spots, see where he's most comfortable running back. So they actually catching the passes out of the backfield. That stuff doesn't matter as much as, okay, where are they being used? You know, is this guy actually going to be a guard or a tackle? We all thought Parsons was a full-time defensive end already before he's even worked out at the start. Dan Quinn pretty much put an end to that. So until you see him with helmets and pads on, that's when you know where they'll be lining up on the field. Anything before this has just been really guessing at it. And so we'll see where, you know, some of these running backs and particularly the offensive line, probably the most questioning spot as far as where guys are going to line up. That all starts in OTAs. And then with injuries, because this is going to be a concern as well. There may be some guys that they're holding out. Take last year with James Washington. He had he was in a boot. Um, he may have had tendonitis. They said they didn't have a specific diagnosis. But, you know, he was in a boot. He wasn't out there on the practice field, and he never really even played any. And you, so that's something to watch is guys coming back from injury. So Tony Pollard, uh, what's his participation going to be? Probably nothing. But you can still hear about at his progress and track it from there, kind of like what was going on with James Washington. Also, with guys that they know, guys that are starter level, 30 snap a game level, they're not going to push them. So Tyron Smith, for example, last year his back tightened up right before practice, and they didn't play him in OTAs. And then you could see some of that. And when they're doing that, they're just being smart, and they're just playing it safe because you can't win anything in, you know, on basketball, on grass at this point. And I would say almost, you know, the opposite is true of Tyron Smith. You know, the more they have plans for him to actually play meaningful games and start at either tackle spot or really be a part of this, the best five offensive line, that means the less you see him in OTAs is probably the better in that sense, you know, as opposed to uh, we're getting a look at the guys who actually need these snaps and these reps all the way through training camp. You know, Tyron is the complete opposite end of that where, you almost want to see him just hanging out on the sideline, you know, letting him know the coaches, let the coaches know he's there. And, okay, great, our plans for you are, you know, much further down the line as far as late season games, playoffs, all of that is so far in the distance right now and only can be talked about for, you know, veteran players like a Tyron Smith. So the guys that we're actually going to be seeing doing any of the football activity we have to talk about are the ones that, you know, haven't established their spot on this roster yet. And so Tony Pollard, too, he's in the RB1 spot now. He gets that same treatment as a starter, just like anyone else, where, you know, even with the injury, too, you're not going to see a whole lot from him. But the less you see from some of these veteran guys, the better as far as just how much they're going to play meaningful snaps in the regular season and beyond. Yeah, so... And again, that kind of dovetails into, well, when you do hear from these guys, what are you going to hear? Well, they're in the best shape of their life, even though they're not out there doing OTA stuff. How weird. Yeah, it's probably easy to be in your best shape when you get to just, you know, throw on a Cowboys bucket hat and walk through some practices. But, you know, we'll see the right mix of, you know, veterans that get to do that and young players that we're excited about, too. So that's always good as far as building on a rookie mini camp where we talked last week, didn't really have a whole lot of football activity, as many as a mini camp could be in that sense. But still something where those players now get to continue into OTAs as the next thing to keep an eye on. Yeah, I know. I was always in the best shape of my life 
when I came in on my day off working at the place where you threw chicken chunks in the box and asked the customers what two sides they wanted. I Yeah, I was always in the best shape of my life when I came in there to pick up my paycheck, always. <laughs> Right, it just never fails to amaze when it's uh, you know, you're away from away from work, you're in you're in your best shape and uh, and ready to go. So these players will will be in that same boat. Michael Gallup already says he looks uh, you know he feels more springy, which I feel like is a cool word. We need we need more uh, springy as a football adjective. So shout out to Michael Gallup on that one. Yeah, I guarantee you by December nobody's springy. <laughs> CDLM and you know Brandon Cooks might need to be at that point. You know we'll see if. The, what the rest of the receiver group looks like at that point, and a whole bunch of these UDFAs trying to make in all that. But yeah, you know, late season contributions from you know a guy like Gallup still off the ACL or any other receiver being springy, I doubt it too. Yeah, and Gallup's probably someone that they could be smart with as well. If he's uh, not feeling too springy during OTAs. Yeah, if not, you know you can have other quarterbacks throwing balls, throwing the ball to, like I said, other receivers that. We're still fighting to make this team. I wouldn't quite put Gallup in the category of, you know, completely established veteran that doesn't need to go get some reps in. But do you necessarily need to see him, you know, running full speed routes against defenses and, you know, catching slant routes from Prescott, all that just yet? Absolutely not. You know, save that for training camp when things really ramp up then. The Gallup question, he's there in the middle of his 20s. But the Cowboys... According to Pro Football Focus, they had three players on two different lists. The top 25 under 25 and the top 30 over 30. Top 30 over 30, Zach Martin, Tyron Smith, Demarcus Lawrence. Top 25 under 25, the three players, Michael Parsons, CeeDee Lamb, Trayvon Diggs. What does it say about the Cowboys roster that they've got three players, which is most on any team among the teams that were on the list, that they've got three players each on these lists. That they have the right mix of, you know, the young players, young up-and-coming talent and a rookie contract that's some of the best in the league, mix of the veterans that it takes to go win. You know, they started this offseason with Brandon Cooks and Stephon Gilmore acquiring them in a trade, both kind of unexpected. We don't see this team make a lot of trades. Both position groups, we didn't necessarily expect them to you know, address right off the bat of the offseason, especially cornerback. That one came out of nowhere a bit, but yet still gives you a pairing with Gilmore and Trayvon Diggs that automatically gives you one of the best secondaries in the NFL going into the season. So, you know, the way they've lost built is caught up in a lot of ways with other contenders. And you look at who they have on the 25 under 25 list. Of course, Parsons was number one on there. CDLM was your third ranked receiver behind just uh, Jamar Chase and Justin Jefferson, two players that, Really, you know, single-handedly carried the offenses of both the Bengals and Vikings there at times, and we saw that Lamb was more than capable of doing that himself for the Cowboys' offense. So he falls in line with those two other wide receiver ones, and then Diggs falls behind Ahmad Gardner, Sauce Gardner from the Jets, Patrick Sertain, AJ Terrell, and Tariq Woolen with the Seahawks, and already has surpassed them and you know turnovers and the things that Quinn looks for defensively. He had three interceptions as a rookie, of course, the 11 in 2022, and then three again last year. You know, Gardner off to a rookie start last year of two. Sertain has six in two years. A.J. Terrell, four interceptions in three years. None last season for the Falcons. And then Tariq Woolen got off to a fast start with six. So even within the rankings of where these Cowboys players fall, you can make a case where you know they should be higher up and this team has a core that they want to go try to win with. And that's why you look then to the 30 over 30 list 
those veterans that really help you win those games late in December and into the playoffs. And that's where you find, as you already mentioned, Zach Martin, Demarcus Lawrence, Stephon Gilmore, all you know, just high plus starters still at this point in their career at really big positions of need. Oh, I said Tyron Smith. It was Stephon Gilmore. That my bad. And Gilmore was the highest ranked corner on this thing. Only the two corners that made the list. Uh, Darius Slay with the Eagles was 29th, sneaking out to the bottom. And then so Gilmore was the highest ranked uh, cornerback on there, and that's why it wasn't really a position we thought the Cowboys might go after. But you put Gilmore, Diggs, Deron Bland, and then just go ahead and mix up you know any names you want between the Donovan Wilsons and Jaron Coase and Jordan Lewis and everybody out there that can play some mix of corner or safety. And it's a really deep secondary that stands out in this point in the offseason for the Cowboys. Yeah, and that just, again, testifies to Dan Quinn's toolbox uh, that he's got a cornerback on each of those lists that's in his secondary, in Gilmore and Diggs. Yeah, it's a secondary that's been somewhat positionless as far as, like I said, being able to flex those guys. So I feel like cornerback is one of the most specific positions a team really teams really have that arts type to look for. You know, there are certain things that are always going to help across the board if you're a corner as far as just your, your height, your length. You know, athleticism, reigns, those types of things go for any team. But other than that, it's pretty specific as far as do you want, you know, someone to play press, someone to play zone, go after the ball in coverage. What you're looking for really changes team to team and corner. And we've all found different examples of how Quinn has really gotten the types of players that he needs and looks for all across his defense. But probably the best example of that is cornerback where, you know, he got this team to go make a trade like Gilmore, play similarly to a Trayvon Diggs as far as being physical and man coverage and prioritizing guys who get get interceptions, get those takeaways where this team has led the NFL in takeaways two years in a row, which is a pretty remarkable stat. And the way that they go after these corners, you know, you pair Gilmore with the secondary and Demarcus Lawrence there, left end, being ranked as a defensive lineman only with Aaron Donald, Cam Hayward, Von Miller, Brandon Graham, and Zadaria Smith. So that gives you two players in Quinn's defense to really, you know, were here before his time, but still get the most out of playing in a scheme where they get to play to their strengths and play with other position fits as well. And the thing is, I hate to say it, but I actually think that having three players on both lists, I, I think it shows that the window is open and they really need to be in a win-now mode organizationally. What have they done that you would say is not necessarily at that point? You know, I know we put a lot of seed on the whole win now phase at times and the slower parts of the offseason where we do whole bits on, you know, what are the most crusade things in football and what does win now even mean? And last year we talked a lot about, you know, you calling it a maybe win now year. So, but I do think this is as far as, and this is recency bias here too, but as far as off seasons I've covered and years I've covered this team, the most collective optimism from the fan base as far as liking what the direction this team is might be right now. So, you know, it does feel like, they're at that point where you said the roster serves a need to win now, and they're trying to do that. Well, leave it to Stephen Jones to just talk to ruin it, because uh, that's all it takes for some Cowboys fans. He was caught uh, afterwards saying the pro professional bull riding championships are coming to AT&T Stadium or something last week. <laughs> And does AT&T Stadium host a rodeo? I feel that's a horrible question I have to ask and not know the answer to, considering I've already been to Austin and Houston rodeo. But like, is DFW Arlington rodeo not at AT&T Stadium? Because if so, like, I will gladly join in on any Cowboys fan that's 
hating on Stephen for talking about bull riding and not an official rodeo event. So we need to. No, oh, they were hating on the fact he just talked about football uh, in the offensive line, and he said that they're going to play the best five guys, and he listed them: Tyron Smith, Tyler Smith, Tyler Biotich, Zach Martin, and Terrence Steele. They got mad at that, like it was five minutes of eight. And he was Goldsmith. I mean, and that's what I'm saying is, like at a certain point, it's almost like a uh, like a stimulation. It's not even a thoughtful response from Cowboys fans anymore when Stephen Jones talks. I didn't quite realize his comments about the offensive line. You know, caused that kind of frenzy. It did kind of cause my own confusion as far as just trying to sit here and write down, like, okay, you know, I've been trying to play the musical chairs that they swore they didn't want to do with this position group now, but here we go all through the offseason. It's what it's going to be because, you know, you're sitting here writing down, okay, you're my starter here. This guy's going to start here. Who does that give me as a backup? All right, well, here's your backup. All right, well, no, he can't be the backup here because now we need, you know, if he goes down, we need someone else who's already starting. So that's kind of my frustration point with trying to piece together this offensive line. But right now, you know, the best five that Stephen gave you to work with are the two Smiths, Beatus, Terrence Steele, and Zach Martin, of course. So, you know, the, I think the probably the most clear and obvious way to look at it as far as your first potential starting group is Tyron Smith goes back to left tackle. Tyron Smith goes to left guard where he should be all along and still has that flexibility to play tackle for you at some point, which is key. Beatus is still your center in, you know, any scenario here. Zach Martin's your right guard in any universe and then Terrence Steele. In this case, is your right tackle. A backup for tackle, that gives you Matt Oletzko, who we've already heard is getting some time at, at guard as well. Josh Ball is that flexible player as well. And then Tyler Smith would be your other backup tackle to go out from guard. And then you're tapping into your backup guards, which could be fifth-round pick, Kasim Richards, Matt Farniak, or Josh Ball, Slash Oletzko, whichever one you know isn't working at guard or tackle at that time. So, yeah, it is an issue of, you know, who these backups are going to be, knowing that you just can't realistically expect 16, 17 games and more in the playoffs from either of Tyron Smith or Terrence Steele, really. And to me, that is really, if I were to just get mad at Stephen Jones because it's in my biology or just in how I was brought up, uh, to do if so. If we give out a Guinness World Record to most, uh, most Stephen Jones interviews transcribed, he would win it, Tim. Yes, yes. Um, and that's probably why I'd end up in an insane asylum at the end <laughs> of it is because I've listened to so many Joneses that they'll probably come out as multiple personalities at some point. But um, the thing is, if I were to get mad, it'd be about that, which is, yeah, some of those guys used to be your depth, and now they're your starters. What's your depth look like? What's swing tackle look like? Well, I know that two of those guys that are now guards were your swing tackle of the future in Josh Ball and Matt Well, let's go. Now they got to be guards, huh? Oh, what does swing tackle look like now? See, that's how you be mad at Stephen Jones. Not just because he talked. Yeah, like I said on the open, I prepped to do a renegades and country music show, and now I'm trying to figure out all this offensive line stuff. Well, you know, I'm glad I'm not one of the coaches that actually has to make these final decisions because the other you know, iteration of this line that I came up with was Tyler Smith stays at left tackle. Terrence Steele was your left guard because you mentioned, you know, let's go and ball. One of them, they're both guards. One of them's a guard now. That's not to take away from the fact that there's actually still 
tough competition for them to see snaps at guard. It's not like they just went to guard because that's where they can actually play, and they want to just be penciled in as starters. You know, we've heard that Steele is getting work at guard, so that's another one they have to compete with. And then even down the roster with this year's pick, Asim Richards, who I mentioned already. So if you have Steele, left guard, Beata, center, Martin, right guard, none of that changes, and then Tyron is your right tackle. I think that does give you more from a depth standpoint as far as calling in those backups, but you know, you don't want to take the field with a lesser offensive line just because of the backup plan you need. You still want to have your best five out there and then also have a solid backup plan, which is what they're working through and uh, you know, some of these first and second year players right now. Yeah, I think that Farniok definitely has a chance to develop more, show more, kind of become the new Connor McGovern. Yeah, he could be your backup guard much easier in that second left to right starting line that I gave with Tyler Smith, your left tackle, you know, whoever's your left guard, Dan Farnia could either be the starter there perceivably or easily step in and give you that same type of level of play. At least I think that's his upside for him. And he just needs to get more snaps under him. Every time he's played, he seems to do well. So the more he can get those reps and, you know, go up against, against Mozzie Smith in practice and do those types of things, then we could really see him kind of as the current surprise player to play more than you would think. You know, there's, there's one every off season where we're sitting there week five. It's like, Hey, how come we didn't mention this dude in the offseason? He, he's starting all these games and nobody said a word about him in training camp. Well, Farniak could be that guy this year. Yeah, and another guy to, that needs to take a step this year that uh, people I talk to, like Eric Palco from uh, the East-West Shrine Bowl, were high on was Alec Lindstrom from Boston College. He's entering year two. Hey, I think he's even talked on first and 10 last year. Um, But he's someone... Now, he's a center, though. But if he could develop just some other uh, interior linemen, uh, you know, moves, if he could develop and become a viable guard option then that's someone who could find his way on the game day roster or at least just stay on the active roster throughout the season. Yeah, he's a player they've made some time commitment to already as far as working through the off-season program. He was on first and 10. Our attorney, Catalina, brings in that Boston connection to the shows where we can get a former BC player and the Cowboys take a chance on you know his ability at center and now their bigger, bigger need being a guard helps you out with, you know, is he more of a down-the-line replacement for Tower Beatis, who you also need as a starter right now and also doesn't have that same flexibility to go to guard? So, you know, Lindstrom could ha- definitely has a role to help them. He's definitely a player that you can plug and play, hopefully more than one position when it's all said and done as far as his NFL journey. But right now, just being a center, that feels like the most kind of long-term position that they're looking for as opposed to what they have. And their immediate answer is a tackle and guard, which they waited until the fifth round to address, which definitely came as a surprise, you know, passing on offensive line in this year's draft for the first, maybe not the first, second, first and second rounds in having bigger priorities. But you know, by the time that third, fourth round came around, still leaving it unaddressed was a surprise at that point. Yeah, but until the pads come on and there's hitting, uh, it's just basketball on grass and we really won't know about the trenches on both sides of the ball until late July. Wasn't this so almost named, but we should change the name of the show to basketball and grass. That is a missed opportunity. I think. Yeah. Well, I, uh, 
Hitting the Orange is cool, though, because Will Evans gave us a shout-out. So let's pass on that until you can get somebody at the combine to say uh, basketball and grass, which might be harder. Yeah, you know, I that you I think you could do that because if you talked to uh, just some of the linemen, both sides of the ball, and you just talked about how are you able to showcase uh, your skills and so forth uh, when the pads aren't on, you feel like it's like basketball on grass because usually with people if you throw a phrase they haven't really heard when you're talking with them then they'll start to say it because they don't have a synonym for it so then they'll use that you know that's how i got will levis <laughs> to be honest with you i don't know how in-depth it was to uh to make this work but yeah i think that proves that it's going to be harder to get someone to say it which would make it all the more impressive but you know if the will have us hitting the yardage thing you know at least it's i think a little bit more more well known in the football jargon universe that's right so uh will levis um to him hidden yard yardage is everything so but um uh i thought you were gonna say i needed to work a dayton triangles reference in at the combine now that that feels too easy. I don't know. Am I I never covered a combine. You tell me if that act does like you know, I'm being an idiot and that's harder than it sounds, but I feel like that one would be easy. You just go up to one of these old timer coaches or scouts or something, it's like, Hey, have you ever, you know, referenced the Dayton Triangles and a scouting report or something? Or what do you know about the Dayton Triangles or some like a prospect that grew up in Ohio or something? That one doesn't sound too hard. I forget the term. It's it's like basically when you get a just a weird impulse do something. I forget what they're calling it now on the internet and so forth, but I've always wanted to ask, have you met with and enlist a defunct team? Have you met with the Dayton Triangles? <laughs> have you met with the Canton Bulldogs? You could probably get someone that's just like stuck in such a trance to say yes, which I think is what you're going for today. Like, yeah, they, these, some of these big name players who who they visited with means nothing because they visit with almost everybody. So just rather, you know, be sorted all the teams they haven't visited with, but the reporters insist on doing it the other way. So they're just like, yes, I met with them. Yes, I met with them. And yeah, you just throw in a Dayton triangles right there and see if they've had a meeting. Yeah. And like I said, it, it'd be fun to do something like that. Uh, Sean, uh, this past week, a legend in the city of Cleveland, a legend in pro football. Uh, the great Jim Brown passed away at the age of 87. And I know we're a Dallas Cowboys podcast, but his impact on pro football was monumental. And he represented a city and a franchise so well, and he was on, check this, the NFL's 50th, 75th, and 100th anniversary teams. So he really was just such a giant to the sport, and I I just wouldn't want to let this particular episode get away without remembering Jim Brown in some way. Yeah, I think, you know, you mentioned kind of what I wanted to get to with this when remembering Jim Brown and that's, you know, someone who certainly can't relate to anything other than just seeing highlights and trying to, you know, contextualize his playing days of what we're seeing in today's game. Football more than any other sport is where, you know, you're like, and you 
said the perfect word for it. Your heroes and your monumental impact players on the sport can make the biggest difference. You know, we all like different sports for different reasons. And for me, you know, baseball is that sport where a lot of me and a lot of other people like it because it's tangible. You know, you might not be able to like to hit the ball 400 yard feet and, you know, jumping over fences and pitching 100 miles an hour, but you can still kind of feel it when you, you know, go out and have a catch with your friends and any other sport really besides football is the same way. But yeah, football, these players are idolized because of what they do is so, you know, not out of the norm, but it's just so athletic and makes you really turn these players into hometown heroes that mean so much for them, their hometowns and the cities they play for because the people idolize them like superheroes and such like that. So that was Jim Brown's legacy around the entire NFL and a place like Cleveland, which all those sports teams get associated with taking on that kind of demeanor of the city, that hardworking type of mindset that gets talked about any time the Cleveland Indians, now the Guardians are good, or any time LeBron James is carrying the Cavaliers to an NBA championship. Cleveland teams, you know, look after their sports heroes and Jim Brown's by far the biggest example that city's ever had. And not and they're not alone in feeling the loss of you know, who we lost in the NFL world when Jim Brown passed as far as, you know, the Cowboys put out a statement, every other team did as well. And it was really felt around the entire sporting and NFL world. Jim Brown actually has some connections to the Dallas Cowboys. The biggest one is in 1971. See, the year before, the Cowboys took uh, Dwayne Thomas running back in the first round in the 1970 NFL draft out of West Texas A&M. And Thomas was promising. He led the league in yards per carry with 5.3. He's mercurial. He, you know, just dealt with off-field stuff. And Jim Brown was a mentor to him. And just really tried to get everything going smoothly for Brown, I mean, for Thomas, on and off the field. And Thomas, he he had his differences with the Dallas Cowboys, which he got to talk about um, on America's Game of the 1971 Dallas Cowboys. So if you go find that on YouTube, uh, Thomas's interviews and talks about that team and that year, they're really profound. But, um, you know, Jim Brown, he lent himself to to who he could, like Dwayne Thomas. He, you know, he was this, this towering figure for Cleveland and Cleveland sports and the Cleveland Browns, but he also was for just the game of football in general as exemplified by Dwayne Thomas. And Thomas, you know, he had a good year in 71. He led the NFL with 11 touchdowns, 11 rushing touchdowns. He was instrumental in them winning 24-3 over the Miami Dolphins, even though Roger Staubach got the MVP. It, it can be argued that Thomas should have been the MVP of that game. So... Again, that's largely due to Jim Brown's, um, you know, trying to be a mentor and help Dwayne Thomas. And, uh, yeah, um, at 87, 
uh, what what longevity he had and what greatness he achieved with that longevity. And that's what made Jim Brown remarkable. Yeah, just one of those players that even generations that now will only get to see highlights of him and only know him in a past tense of what he meant for the league was still, you know, it's almost like a Michael Jordan-like name where that connection will still be felt to anyone that brings up Jim Brown, no matter the generation of football fan, all the way from those that got to watch him play to those who will come up and know the game and hear all the great running backs get compared to the benchmark that was that was set so very high. And that is by Jim Brown, you know, both Tony Dorsett for the Cowboys and, of course, Emmett Smith on his way to the rushing title passed up Jim Brown on the yardage list. And that just goes to show the legacy of, you know, what those running backs met in Dallas. We know they're both revered by Cowboys fans for what they did in racking up those yards. And you can tell that by the way that they surpassed Jim Brown in rushing yards and how much that must have meant at the time. For sure. All right, let's go ahead and get to the Cowboys' birthdays. Before we get out of here, uh, let's start on Wednesday with Chidobi Awuzie, played cornerback from 2017 to 2020. He turns 28 years old. On Thursday, hey, it's another New Jersey guy. Uh, Pete Hunter, he played uh, cornerback for Dallas from 2002 to 2004. He turns 43 on Thursday. Uh, he also had just a unremarkable, you know, going to so-so tenure with Dallas. But the Seattle Seahawks signed him to as a starting cornerback in their 06 wildcard game against Dallas, and Pete Hunter never played a game all season in 06. This is his only game of the season. He was working as a loan officer had to bring up that game. in Dallas. When the Seahawks called him in that game against the Cowboys, he had five tackles, a pass breakup, and recovered a fumble. Like, where's this guy been? As usual. Why do the Seahawks always get those guys? I mean, like one of my favorite Al Michaels calls was in the Super Bowl they lost to the um to the Patriots in dramatic fashion after Butler interception. They get down on that goal line. I forget the receiver that made the catch, but like it was some guy off the street that used to work at a footlocker, apparently. According to Al Michaels, on the call, in the moment, he pulled up that fact and was like, this guy was working in a footlocker, and now he's making a potential game-winning type catch in the Super Bowl. And, of course, it wasn't because of the interception that was egregious at the goal line. But stuff like that, just why does it always have to be the same? Yeah, Seahawks? yeah. So, anybody's from Atlantic City. So, uh does he call it a Taylor Ham sandwich or pork roll sandwich, Sean? Man, I have no idea down there. People can't actually be from Atlantic City, right? Like, I, I, I've always been baffled by people actually saying that's their hometown. Like, to me and everybody, that's just a place you go in New Jersey to feel like you're not even in any given state anymore. You're just, you know, geographically you're in Jersey, but you're in your own bubble where you can gamble and do things that you can't do anywhere else in the state, which makes it really weird. And you're on the boardwalk and, you know, things are weird down there. And Bruce Springsteen writes a million songs about it. So, yeah, I don't understand how people can call Atlantic City their hometown. That must be a weird perspective to, uh, you know, take with you the rest of your life. But, yeah, it helps you uh, get a starting job for playoff games against the Cowboys one day. So quite the journey for Pete Hunter to be from down there in AC, where they probably call it a Taylor Ham just because it's a little bit closer, not a little bit closer, but it is way down in the south part of the state. So whatever's going on down in AC, it's probably a Taylor Ham sandwich. Okay, and then on Friday, Michael Parsons turns 24 years old. 
And those are your Cowboys birthdays. Working out uh, in the Austin area, so I'm still on, you know, lots to, uh, you know, have a sel- selfie with both him and Troy Aikman. So if Michael Parsons is around and, uh, you know, hanging around downtown Austin, I'll be sure to let our listeners know. But it's just about time for him to report up to OTAs to be around the star more. But he's been putting his workouts in with a uh, former tackle, Andrew Whitworth, and things like that to get ready for pass rush and his role on the Cowboys defense this season. And if you run into him, ask him to subscribe to the Hidden Yardage podcast on Apple, Spotify, TuneIn, and Stitcher. It's up to you, Sean. And tell him to coerce him into a saying basketball and glass into the microphone. Yeah, that that I think that would be awesome if you were able to do that. Um, also, this past week, I ran into someone here in the cornfields of Ohio that um, was from New Jersey. And I asked them, I said, let me ask you this. Does Central Jersey even exist? And they said no. Oh, man. That's how you end up in Ohio. <laughs> I got to ask you this. Like, you bring this up a lot as far as like you meet people in your day-to-day life or over the phone or whatever that end up being from New Jersey. Like, How do you... Like, how does that come up? Because, like, I talk to a lot of people, and I just assume in some cases I know they're from Texas, so I don't have to ask. So we go we go through that. But, like, to me, I don't get to the point of always knowing where somebody's from just in any given conversation. So, like, it feels like you always find out that somebody's from New Jersey. How, how do you get that out of people so quickly? Usually an accent, usually an area code. Uh, just if the business I'm calling is based in New Jersey, you know, that's that's what I mean. But just like this guy in a cornfield, how how did that come about in your conversation? Like five minutes in, you're like, "And where are you from?" Like, I uh, so I go walk at the my sister's church during the days of the week, and so he was in there talking, and he mentioned New Jersey, and he didn't sound okay. like he had the conventional brogue of around here, and so you know, I hit him with everything. I I even hit him with the pork roll and Taylor ham question. And well, that's, said, the one, no, that's the one. No, he said this. So it may have been an imposter. He said, I've never had a pork roll sandwich before. Well, uh, this dude's from like Mars. <laughs> right. There's no, there's no way you met someone from New Jersey who hasn't had this sandwich, especially considering I think I've had one in Ohio too. So he has, he has double no excuse to like not find this thing. It, it was, it was really strange. Uh, when he said that, but, uh, you know, I guess someone like that would then conclude that central Jersey, Jersey doesn't exist. I can, that, that take, I respect more than saying it's Taylor ham or that you haven't tried it just for, you know, the record of things that people keep track of in New Jersey and New Jersey only. Like I can respect if you want to say central Jersey doesn't exist. I'm not going to like, be like, Oh, but it actually does. Like, you know, to me, that's just geographical lines that don't matter to dividing up the state, divide it up wherever you want. But call it pork well i guess only dan quinn can settle this so i'll have to track him down again he calls the tail of ham you told me at the combine it ruined my whole combine no whether central jersey exists oh the cent- yeah he well where's he from again the northern part uh yeah he'll he'll probably say it doesn't exist too so for the record it's not going to exist all right well we'll have to get all that sorted out next week so there it is <laughs>